There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. And today I'm delighted to be joined by award-winning journalist Tom Lamont to discuss the cover story he wrote for the latest issue of Prospect. We called it The Prince versus the Press and it tells the inside story of the bitter battle between Harry and the newspapers that handed him and how the phone hackers of the past have switched sides to help him. Tom, welcome. The reason I thought this piece would be interesting is that I think most people switched off paying attention to this story in about 2013, about 10 years ago. And I, I suspect most people think the story ended. Perhaps you were one of those who hadn't taken much interest. I switched off, yeah. Maybe not as soon as 2013. I think a lot of people, even those quite devoted to the subject and interested in it, maybe stopped paying attention around 2015 when there was a trial that was a mirror trial and that had a form of resolution. I think people were agreed settlement fees. There were some findings. There was some there was some sort of formal legal judgment involved. And then I think a, a lot of people, me included, stopped paying attention to the story almost entirely. I was a much younger journalist when the story first broke. I, I read it with total fascination, but as a, a complete outsider. And that was one of the most enjoyable and fascinating things about this process for me diving back in was I got to report on it as a journalist and not just to experience it as a reader. So we should probably just do a new reader start here for people who haven't been paying attention at all. So the, the, the story began with the royals finding out that their phone had been hacked and it was traced back to one reporter at the News of the World and he, he was sacked and went to prison and one private investigator but the story of the news of the world at that time was that it was just one rotten apple. And then around about 2009, I think it was, I, I was editing The Guardian and Nick Davis, the reporter, came into my office and said that he discovered that this one rotten apple story wasn't true. Do you want to pick up the story from there? Yeah, so I've read Nick's fascinating book on this. and It's an absolute belter. He, I think, first picked up on the story, if I'm remembering correctly, he was sitting at a dinner, sat next to a senior figure from Scotland Yard who casually mentioned something. And as you know, you don't casually, casually mention something to a good reporter like Nick. He went away and st started scratching around. I think what he casually mentioned was that there were, in fact, thousands of victims of phone hacking, not just one. Not just one. So not just one rogue reporter, not just one or two victims, potentially a lot of rogue reporters, potentially a lot of victims. And Nick's reporting, I think, if I remember rightly, went on for a couple of years. Yeah, he first, he first, uh, we produced a piece that said that a one public figure had been paid off to the tune of about a million pounds, uh, sanctioned by James Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's son, uh, in order to keep it all quiet. But this was a, a different rogue reporter. Um, and suggested that at that point the, there was a boardroom cover-up, I think is the only way you could put it, of, of criminality that they had discovered. And it all the, the dam really burst in 2011 with the revelation that Millie Dowler, the murdered schoolgirl, had been also hacked. And the, the people who up to that point had thought, well, this is just about celebrities, then thought, actually, this is disgusting. And 
that's what led to the closure of the news of the world and a lot of people being put on trial, a lot of people resigning, in, not, not just in the newspapers, but in the police and regulators and so on and so forth. But that's, I guess, the moment at which people switched off, and that's where you took up the story. So do you want to say what surprised you most about what you learned that had been happening since 2013? Yeah, well, I was coming in, I was coming into this, I started my reporting in 2022, after we had a conversation. Um, and I was one of the first things that struck me was just how live a legal situation this was. I think I had idly assumed that most of it had gone away, perhaps that I might have glanced and seen a, a news story every so often and be made aware that there was still legal cases rumbling through the civil courts. But there were an enormous number of legal cases still rumbling through the civil courts, hundreds. And the more people I spoke to, the more initially very service level digging I did, it was clear that over a thousand people had settled their cases over the years. Press Gazette did a really interesting story on the 10 year anniversary of the closure of the news of the world. And they'd done some sums, read a lot of financial reports, and I think they put the total cost of the hacking scandal to Rupert Murdoch's publishing arm in excess of a billion pounds. A billion pounds. A billion pounds. Another journalist who I got to know while reporting this story, who works for Byline Investigates. Perhaps we'll talk about that website in a minute. Her name's Florence Wildblood, and she had updated those figures to bring them as far up to date as she could using more recent financial records. She put it at about £1.2 billion. Enormous sum of money, an enormous number of people involved. The story hadn't gone away. It's just perhaps it had stopped being reported on with the same verve and, and intensity and I could understand it as well I mean I, I feel that there is a level of fatigue with any long-running news story the really ex the really dramatic moments were many years in the rearview mirror the trials of Andy Coulson and Rebecca Brooks but I don't know whether you were aware this was coming when we spoke about it last year I wasn't aware until I'd spent a bit of time properly reporting it but what was coming down the pipe was this figure and this very famous person involved in the in the whole saga i think we're allowed to name him we're allowed to name him prince harry and that was going to revive interest in a big way and and we we sort of watched that unfold live as it were while we were underway on this reporting process that sort of almost month to month seemed to be changing the stakes of the situation for a lot of the people i was interviewing Okay, there's probably another bit of context that we just need to put in so that everyone gets up to speed. The original claims were all against News of the World, and the company put their hands up and said, yes, this was terrible, we're closing the paper. Rupert Murdoch famously went to Parliament and said this was the humblest day of his life before somebody put a meringue pie in his face. Nick tried to stop the meringue. Yes, I think, I think everyone thought that was a catastrophic, it was the most catastrophic meringue pie in history because it kind of punctured the line of questioning and actually brought undeserved sympathy to Rupert Murdoch. But anyway, and then the person who had been running News International in the UK, Rebecca Brooks, went on trial at the Old Bailey with Andy Coulson, the former editor of the News of the World. He was convicted, she wasn't, and Rupert Murdoch gave her job back. So she's back running the new, running the the Murdoch stable of papers, which includes The Sun, a paper she used to edit. And what then happened was that the legal actions jumped from the news of the world to The Sun and saying, well, actually, we're now going to sue The Sun as well. That was embarrassing for the company because then you've got Rebecca Brooks who's been put back in charge, who's responsible for The Sun. Murdoch doesn't want to close another tabloid newspaper. So can you uh, just fill us in on what was happening? You know, I'm, I'm a famous film uh, star. I discovered that I was hacked by the sun, or I, sus I suspect that I was hacked by the sun. I whack in a writ. What was the response of, uh, of News, um, we now have to call them News UK, to, to all these writs claiming that, they, that people were being hacked by the sun? Well, I think these claims have come tended to come in waves. Um, one of the legal strategists very deeply involved in this process described it to me like a 
series of waves coming up at beach. You had a wave in 2012, you had a wave in 2014, you had a wave in 2019. What generally happens is that someone in the public eye, maybe someone not in the public eye, becomes aware they've been hacked or illegally spied on by this newspaper group. They make a claim. They might be grouped together with other claimants. They might Their claim might proceed individually. It, it changes from case to case, but they might get as far as preliminary hearings, courtroom appearances. They might sit at the back while lawyers for them argue with lawyers for the defending newspaper group. There might be particulars of claim, they call them skeleton arguments. They might be drafted, traded with the other side. They'll get as far as one or two or three preliminary hearings. A lot of information is generated just from that process. And But that, necessarily, that information doesn't necessarily go anywhere because they might not get all the way to trial. But, but the pattern so far has been that the, the sun actions have all been settled, haven't they? So, yes. Even if there are preliminary hearings, even if it seems like a trial might be about to happen, that there might be a date set for a trial, they might, in certain cases, they got as far as hours to go before the trial was due to take place. The, if the defendant settles, offers settlement money, it's very, it can be very, very hard for the claimants not to accept that settlement money which is a whole other complicated issue. But in the case of uh, News UK, as we call them in our piece, we call them News Corp, every single claimant who had lodged a phone hacking claim against the company, every single one of those claimants had ended up settling with the company. Even those who you might think would be minded not to settle because they were upset, hurt, angry, had got, been very public about their feelings towards this organization. So, so two things are going on there. One is it, it feels from the outside as though it's simply too embarrassing to let these cases come into court because who knows what evidence might come out and that could be very bad for the people at the top of the company. Uh, but the second bit is that it's simply too expensive. You've, they've, they've written a check for whatever it is, you know, £100,000, £200,000, please go away. Uh, and as you say, for, for, for technical reasons, it then becomes prohibitively expensive for most people to then uh, say, well, I, I want my day in court anyway. Yeah, e e there's a legal strategist called Evan Harris who oversees a lot of the claimant. former Lib Dem MP. Former Lib Dem MP, former doctor who was hacked himself by the tabloids. It's close with Hugh Grant and Steve Coogan and a lot of the foremost figures in the what I've come to think of as the movement for press reform. And he told me that, as he's come to understand it, the the settlement is a is a kind of bribe and it's also a kind of blackmail. This is Evan Harris's view, and but I think it explains the situation quite well in that it's a lot of money being offered to you as a claimant, which is tempting. But it's also a lot of money that's very difficult to refuse because of the peculiarities of civil litigation in the UK. If you are offered a certain amount of settlement money and that amount is higher than the amount you're likely to win if you took your case all the way to trial, you could be liable for all the costs of the trial, of the build-up to the trial. So, for instance, they've offered you £100,000. You say, I want my day in court. They, they say, OK, you win, uh, but actually... This is a £60,000 case. Suddenly you face forking out a million or two million uh, for, the, for the cost of the entire action, even though you've won. Yeah, as Evan Harris put it to me, you have to sell your house to pay someone you hate. <laughs> Not a lot of motivation there to, to go through with the trial. So everyone settled. In the case of News Corp, everyone settled. At least they have done up to now. Okay, well, pause there because that brings in Prince Harry when we 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 don't want to um, rush it with Prince Harry. But um, describe the cast of characters that that because a lot of this I, I had no idea about. But the the the, um, the cast of characters you uh, uncovered uh, who are working night and day behind the scenes because they're an unlikely crew. Yeah, the dirty dozen. This was as a as a journalist, as a writer. This was what made me interested in the story. A lot of what we've been talking about is quite dry, quite legal. I was fascinated by the the, the human cast working in the background of, of all this. Have been 
who've come together over many years to push forward a lot of these cases to help on the movement for press reform to try and hold the British tabloid media to, to greater account. I'll quickly talk you through some of the cast of characters I got to know while reporting this story. There was There's a man called Graham Johnson, was a former investigative reporter for the Sunday Mirror and the News of the World. He'd sort of flushed out of the tabloid ecosystem in the mid-noughties and had had a few years in, in the wilderness. And he'd found his way back to this whole arena, this, this movement for, for greater accountability of the tabloid press through Evan Harris, who we've discussed, who was overseeing a lot of the civil claims that were moving through the courts. In around 2013, Graham Johnson was convicted of phone hacking himself. He was given a suspended sentence in order to do some community service. And after the trial was over, Harris approached him about possibly collaborating, possibly the two of them working together, perhaps Johnson working as a form of whistleblower, talking about his history in the tabloids and what happened while he worked there. The same thing was happening with a different former tabloid journalist, a man called Dan Evans, who worked at the Sunday Mirror as well, who worked at the News of the World, who was a prolific phone hacker by his own admission now. He'd worked on hundreds, thousands of stories that had been generated through unlawful information gathering, essentially calling in to listen to the private voicemails of people in the public eye, mostly, or their associates. He'd washed out of the tabloid ecosystem a little bit later than Graham. In his case, it had all happened in a much more pressurised and stressful way. He'd been caught hacking into the voicemail of an interior designer called Kelly Hoppen. In around, I think it was the late noughties, he was put on gardening leave from his job at the News of the World. There were various legal wrinkles along the way. He ended up becoming, he ended up giving evidence against Andy Coulson at the, at the trial that took place in 2014. And after that trial was over, in a similar kind of way, have you seen the Avengers movies, the Marvel Avengers movies? They, 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 they slowly built towards this great big blockbuster Avengers movie by having uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character Nick Fury approach all the different sort of superheroes individually and to see if they wanted to team up and become this kind of this this superhero gang. And I, I sort of came to think of Evan Harris as, as a bit like, as the sort of Nick Fury of phone hacking and that he would go to each trial and wait till it was over and then pass a little note through through an intermediary or or approach these individuals himself. I think he took Graham Johnson and his partner for a, a coffee at a greasy spoon and he passed Dan, Dan Evans a note through his father-in-law. Slowly he was gathering this ragtag band of people who might essentially be able to provide information, provide impetus for other cases that we've taken place. Also, because I'd love to know the motivation of Evan Harris. So he was MP for um, the North Oxford or West Oxford. Yeah. And uh, the Lib Dem, he was a, a doctor by training. He lost his seat. Why does he suddenly become the ringmaster and who's paying him? This is a good question. If you meet him... His enthusiasm for this subject is completely apparent and quite infectious. He, as he told me, has dedicated years of his life to this. He works from a tiny cramped office in Fleet Street. He works with a colleague, Dan Waddell. They have, between them, overseen or contributed to or somehow steered hundreds of civil cases. What's driving him in this? It's it's hard for me to say as an outsider. I know that repeatedly in interviews I did with people involved in this world, what came up again and again and again was this idea of getting even, which surprised me a little bit that people would be so frank as to speak like that. I'm not sure Evan himself did, but certainly many of the former tabloid journalists spoken in, in these terms. They felt that, and I think people like Hugh Grant and Steve Coogan have spoken in these terms, they felt hard done by bullying tabloid editors and executives and felt this was a way that they could get right the scales get their own back that's if that's not too harsh a way of putting it i get that about coogan and grant because they they had their lives intruded into very severely 
But in a way, Johnson and Evans were the bullies. They were the bullies who were doing the intrusion. Who do do they think they're getting even with and how did it ruin their lives? Graham told me that he felt like his tabloid days sort of came to an end when he refused to get on board this new method of investigation that was hacking into famous people's phones. He did it once, he told me. He did it briefly and he felt grubby. He refused to do it anymore. And in the years since, I think he's come to think that that was more or less the end of his tabloid career, that if you weren't going to get on board and and do this, what use were you? In Dan Dan Evans' situation was a little bit different, but I think he felt like he was put under enormous pressure by his employers. And I think he worried that he was potentially being shaped as a scapegoat at one point. He crossed over. He gave evidence against his former employers. It came to take over a decade plus of his life. I think he's been pretty open with me that he's suffered a lot emotionally and mentally from that. He, He feels that, and I think a lot of the tabloid journalists who are dragged through the courts feel that as lower rung, less important employees, they took the burden of the, they took the greater proportion of the burden of this, that their superiors were not subjected to the same levels of scrutiny that they were. That's perhaps one driving reason. That there's a, there's a totally separate thing going on here that I found increasingly fascinating as I was doing the reporting. You'll know this, I know this, journalism is addictive. Journalism is a, is a calling. Journalism is something you feel compelled to do but you need a publication to do it for. You need someone to back you. You need an editor. You need funding. And what I felt about both Graham Johnson and Dan Evans, and, and certainly to a really powerful extent with Graham, was that these were born journalists who no longer had any outlet, no longer no longer had any place to be journalists for. They couldn't work for the tabloids anymore. They were people non gratis. Excuse me, that was a bastardization of Latin there. They were they'd washed themselves out of the tabloid world. They weren't going to get employment there. And I think they were treated fairly suspiciously by broadsheet newspapers, by broadcasters. So they were left without anywhere to sort of put this energy to report. What they decided to do at a certain point in the 2010s was found their own website. Just tell us about that website and what it's called. This is a website called Byline Investigates. It's It was co-founded by Johnson and Evans. They told me it was funded by crowdfunding. It's, if you look, if you look through the years of their articles that are on there, it's primarily written by Johnson and Evans. And the subject is almost exclusively phone hacking, the, the, the after effects, the ripples of the phone hacking saga. And then there's Byline Times, which is a newspaper and website. And then there's Hacked Off, which is a kind of pressure group on behalf of victims, but also with the stated aim of trying to clean up the British press. Yeah. Is that right? That there are sort of overlapping circles of exactly of people who are people with similar shared interests and convictions. And, and they include some of the private investigators who were doing the hacking. Did you speak to any of those? Various people have contributed to either the reporting that appears on Byline Investigates or the civil claims that are moving through the courts. And some of the people who've contributed are not only former tabloid journalists, but the private investigators they used to pay to do some of their digging, some of which was illegal. So, for example, there's a former private investigator called Steve Whittemore. He now works with the press reform movement. He contributes to civil litigation. He has provided Graham Johnson with a lot of information that's generated a lot of stories that he's published on Byline Investigates. There's another private investigator whose name you'll remember, uh, Glenn Mulcair. He, we spoke on the phone during the course of this reporting, and he described to me the difficulties he's had trying to move on in his life. And one of the ways he's tried to move on has been to contribute where asked to civil litigation or 
or to confirm or stand up some of Byline Investigates reporting. There are. This is not to say that all former tabloid journalists or all current tabloid journalists or all former private investigators or all current private investigators have come to Jesus and joined the press reform movement. There are, as I understand it, there are many who would see Johnson and Evans as as turncoats, as as betrayers of journalism. And I know that during the time I spent with Graham Johnson reporting this story, there were t- there were days when he, he was under very visible and obvious stress. And he told me at one point that he was he, he, there was potential legal action coming his way from a, a group of reporters and private investigators who felt they'd been wronged by him and his reporting. He's not done this without cost to himself, without 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 paying the price. To go back to what I was saying before, though, when you feel driven to be a journalist, to report, to uncover secrets and bring things to light, whether you've got prospect backing you or a broadsheet backing you or a tabloid backing you or none of those things you still might just have to do it to satisfy yourself and the sense I got strongly from Graham Johnson was someone who just felt compelled to keep digging on this keep digging even if he was just publishing stories on his own website that might not have the the reach or the or the readership of, of more mainstream publications After the break, we'll talk more about the phone hackers who are now helping to make the case against their former bosses. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 a month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So at this point, we should flesh the story out a bit because you've mentioned the Mirror Group. And in some views, the Mirror Group were at this even more prodigiously than the than news titles. And more recently, there have been allegations against the mail titles, the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday, uh, under the umbrella group of Associated News, which owns them and which are firmly denied by the mail. But this has a sense of seeping out that it wasn't, you know, it began with one rotten apple in one newspaper. But, but the picture that is emerging in court, or at least is claimed in court, is that this was really infecting pretty much the whole of the tabloid and mid-market area of news. Yeah, and I think often it was the same figures involved. If you had a skill at this, if you were if you were a good hacker, if you if you were good at gathering if you were good at these methods of unlawful information gathering, you were selling that skill to whichever publication would pay. Steve Whittemore kept a kept intricate logs of the work he was doing. 
it wasn't just the news of the world. At least, at least if you read Whittemore's notes as I have done, this was every publication. We were using him for something, and the I'll talk a little bit about the reason that the male litigation seems so much further behind the Mirror and the Murdoch litigation, because that was intriguing to me when I came into this freshly. I asked Evan Harris about this. There have been years worth of, of claims made against the Mirror and against News Corp. Why only now in the last year has there been the first of the claims made against the male? And he said this was a f for a few reasons. There was the evidence, there wasn't a whistleblower from the inside of the mail, as there was in the case of the Mirror with Dan Evans. And in the News Corp litigation, that all began with a, a set of notes compiled by Glenmore Care that the police got hold of and then Nick got hold of. There was firm evidence to, to rest cases on. Everything, I got this sense that everything has been more amorphous with the mail. And I asked Evan what had changed, why, what was different in 2022 and 2023 to, to mean this, these, the first claims were made. And he said that in the first instance, it was because there was a, a gutsy group of claimants who were willing to take a chance, willing to put themselves through potentially years of quite vicious courtroom struggling. And he said it was because of Graham Johnson, because of the investigative work he'd been doing, patiently, largely unthanked for many years. He'd been digging and digging and scratching and scratching and finding more and more information that linked the male group of newspapers to these same sort of activities. And in a further action that surprised me as a journalist a little bit, probably su would surprise you as an editor, he was fairly freely providing the information he uncovered to claimants and their lawyers. If they asked him for it, he would generally give it to them. Almost to the point that it started to look to me as if the self-published stories he was putting up on Byland Investigates were a kind of advertisement for the information he had, a kind of shop window for, for lawyers to say, come and, come and ask me for this evidence I've gathered. It's here. It's waiting. He, we were talking once about the fact that his frustrations with the fact that um, broadsheet newspapers, he called them wordy newspapers in his, in his lovely Liverpudlian brogue, and he um, and he said that he, he was frustrated by how how little interest they tended to show in in the in the in the evidence he dug up and the investigations he'd done. But he just decided to be comfortable with the idea of, and this is a quote, the courts being my newspaper. It was almost as if, without a documentary or a, without a f front page splash, he was just going to publish in the in the civil courts that he was going to give his evidence to lawyers and let it come out that way. I found that completely fascinating that he was so devoted to the idea of a, of investigation and, and getting a readership that, that even that would seem like publication to him. Now, of course, it should be said from the point of view of the newspaper publishers, although they've been shelling out lots of money, they're also, particularly the mail is denying, I think, more or less everything. The mirror is denying some of it, and you, you put a bit of this into your piece, but it's also coming out in court actions. There's a pushback against Graham Johnson. They say he's a proven criminal, he's a proven liar, he's got various dodgy deals with various people. How much do you think these cases are dependent on Johnson? And I suppose the other the other question which you didn't completely nail in your piece is who's paying him because the I think the allegation or suspicion is that the late Max Mosley, the Formula One chief, who was whose exotic, I think is the word the tabloids might use, sex life was exposed by the news of the world, uh, and who really spent the rest of his life pursuing them with a considerable amount of money. And they say, oh, this perverted old Nazis, as they they would term him, <laughs> is behind all this. It's got nothing to do with trying to clean up the press or morality. It's just, it's, it's Mosley is beyond the grave funding all this. Did, did, did you manage to nail that? Or did you just have to go on the, uh, the, the account of what you were told? Yeah, well, we know for sure that he was extraordinarily wealthy 
Max Mosley. And we know he was fumingly angry with Rupert Murdoch's media organization for the for the coverage of his private life and the news of the world before it closed. Nobody would confirm to me that he was a direct financier of this when when he was alive. But I certainly got the impression and perhaps felt I had the sort of tacit acknowledgement that his death had meant there was less money going around for the kind of work they wanted to do to keep momentum going on on their press reform movement. Dan Evans has this idea, and it's an interesting idea, I think, to make a a public-use website that gathers together a lot of the information that's come into the public domain through the various civil cases that have gone through, have almost come to court or have come to court. And he describes the difficulty of getting the funding for that, of searching for crowdsourced funding. I think perhaps a few years ago, before Max Mosley died, that's the kind of thing that might have been easier to get off the ground. I don't know why they're a bit prickly about the sources of funding. I, I think perhaps there's a reluctance to seem like they're a sort of pointed weapon, that they're that they're someone's sort of bazooka. And Mosley didn't make much of a secret of the fact that he was wanted wanted to get even with the people who'd made who'd humiliated him. So I don't know, is the truth. You're right. You you pointed to a, a weakness in the reporting of my story <laughs> and I'm holding my hands up to that weakness. Sometimes people just don't want to tell you everything yeah. and yeah. you you find out as much as you can. I don't think for me that it makes a huge difference. You're talking about extremely wealthy organizations and in the case of the Murdoch Media Empire, almost limitly, limitlessly <laughs> wealthy organization. I got the sense that the arrival of Max Mosley on the scene, even the state scales a bit and provided some financial ballast to an organization that would otherwise never have been able to compete on the the same kind of footing. I think you're you're right that Max Mosley was, of all the countless thousands of victims of the news of the world, was a formidable target to take on because he was very rich, he was very angry and very, very determined. And I suppose once you've had your sex life exposed that explicitly over the pages of the News of the World for millions of people to read, you've got nothing to lose. And Which brings us on to, and we said earlier in our conversation that really this case depended on there being one person rich enough, angry enough, want to take a case to trial and drumroll you can reveal that it is prince harry Harry, yes so as you were writing this piece there were the early hearings and i think you were in court watching prince harry as he these hearings got underway yeah and the very fact of his presence in court seemed enormously significant to me and i think to a lot of people there these were preliminary hearings i spoke earlier about how a claimant's case might get as far as preliminary hearings, one, maybe two, maybe three. Perhaps that claimant might appear at those hearings. So far, none of them had got over the hump into a formal trial where they appeared as as a witness. The expectation, I think, would be that Prince Harry wouldn't necessarily be different to any of the other claimants that he might get so far down the road. There might be some preliminary hearings he might even attend. But then the a formal trial wouldn't take place. Like a lot, of, like so many of the others, there would be a, a settlement, perhaps a last-minute settlement, and everyone would go home. Prince Harry's situation is f- unique and fascinating. He's someone who is very wealthy. He's someone who has been, in my view, bullied, spied on for most of his life by powerful tabloid organisations. He said many times in recent years that he he blames the British tabloid media system for hounding his mother, bullying his wife. He's motivated to take a stand against them. 
And he's been given this extremely <laughs> unusual opportunity to do that. In his case, if he can resist settling, if he can refuse a settlement, he can force trials to happen. There's very few people who would have the combination of wealth, motivation to do this. Some would say, Graham Johnson would say, there's few people who would have the fortitude to do this. It's a, it takes a lot of guts. It takes thick skin. These are vicious. These can be vicious cases. It seems, this is an evolving situation as we speak, but it seems as if Prince Harry's in it for the long game. I was there at a preliminary hearing for his claim against the Mirror Group. The very fact that he showed up for a preliminary hearing, which are which are quite dent, legally dense, legally dense, they're quite boring, they're quite slow. The very fact that he was in the room seemed like an immediate billboard advertisement for the fact that he meant to see this through. And indeed, the trial has now started. He didn't settle. He he is the trial is underway. He'll be appear as a witness. He's due to appear as a witness in June. There will be some sort of finding at the end of this. There will be some sort of resolution. I imagine a lot through the weeks of the coming trial. There'll be all sorts discussed in the in a public forum. That's his claim against the mirror. That's the mirror. Then he's got claims against the male, and he's got the claim the associated, and then he's got claims against the the News UK titles. So he's. I would say he's he's the most famous, most prominent litigant in a group of very famous and very prominent litigants who are just beginning a claim against the male. That won't play out into a that won't that will take months, if not years, to play out. He's also separately involved in a claim against News Group, and that's the one to keep an eye on. That is scheduled, I think, to take place early next year. And if Prince Harry does what he's done with the Mirror Group and proceeds to trial, that could be really interesting. Really, why, why is that particular case the one to watch? Because none of the claims against News Corp have gone to trial. Everyone settled. Everyone, and that includes people who really, really didn't want to settle. I don't know if you remember, but the actor Sienna Miller gave a very moving speech on the steps of the High Court a few years ago after she settled with News Group year, after years of really extreme treatment, I think, bullying, harassment. She made decisions about her life and her health based on her coverage and her interactions with a tabloid newspaper, which in my mind is all sorts of wrong. She had no incentive to settle. She And she said so on the steps of the High Court. She said, I don't want to be here. I wanted to go to trial. But for reasons we've discussed, the, the curious arrangement of civil litigation, she wasn't able to. You can secure conditional apologies. You can secure private acknowledgements of wrongdoing, maybe some public acknowledge, some guarded and public acknowledgements of wrongdoing. But ultimately in every situation so far, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases so far, people have settled with News Group. That's what makes Prince Harry so interesting, because he's put up a marker with the mirror case. He said, I might not settle. We won't know until day one of the trial if such a trial happens, because settlements can happen on the, the 11th hour. But if they get to day one, if there's a sitting judge, if there's a room full of lawyers, if Harry's in there, imagine a bunch of journalists will be in there. I wouldn't mind watching, see what happens. It, ha it has the makings of the trial of the century. All sorts might come out. And there must, I imagine, naming no names, but some, some sweaty figures who used to edit Mirror Group titles who will be anxious about what could come out during that case. In the oh, current... On, let's name him, Piers Morgan. Must, must be not exactly relaxed because in the opening statements of the claimants, they've explicitly said he not only he must have known, but he did know. Mm. Well, he's obviously always said that he didn't know 
there was any sort of illegal news gathering or unlawful information gathering on his watch. There have been admissions made, I think we can say, by Mirror executives that phone hacking took place in that organisation. You only have to read their annual financial reports to see that. They, they make all sorts of open references to historic phone hacking litigation. They, they set aside tens of millions of pounds each year to, to, pay, to pay former victims of that. I don't think that's any secret. Piers Morgan himself has often said he didn't know about it. It might be, I don't, he recently gave an interview where he's, I think he said, we might have published stuff, but I didn't know the source of it, which may very well be true. Certainly a, a trial like Harry's against the Mirror, you would expect that to be pushed and prodded quite a few times over the coming weeks. There were people I spoke to for this story who wondered whether in the aftermath of a long civil trial where all sorts of evidence is picked over, all sorts of accusations are made, there are people watching on who wondered whether that might prompt the police or the CPS to take another look, to, to reinvestigate. But that's for the future. And we should cover ourselves by saying that, of course, Piers Morgan does deny this and the male group does deny it and, and, and some of the specific examples of hacking that are coming up in the court at the moment are, are denied as well. It's a very complicated story and, and you took your time to tell it in the magazine, I have to say in a, a very elegant and entertaining way. Um, I, I, w did you enjoy doing it? Is enjoy the right word? I did. I really enjoyed it. I. I like I said, I'd stopped paying attention to this, like so many people had. I was surprised at, at what a sort of rich and active ongoing story it was. I really enjoyed plunging into that world of, of, of tabloid journalism where it intersected with broadsheet journalism. I enjoyed reading Nick's book, talking to Nick, and then getting to know some of the people who'd change sides over the years the what was interesting about those guys Johnson Dan Evans they had seen the real work they'd seen the the other side they'd seen they'd been at the, the the front and they had stories to tell and there was no longer any reason for them not to tell those stories with total openness they'd both in their own ways I think come to have initial qualms that turned into revulsion at the, at the work they were doing and that had left these I, f I felt really interesting individuals who had had an extreme job that involved more or less sort of sanctioned corporate bullying on an on enormous scale had come to see the errors of their ways had were trying to use their sort of years since to to correct that to undo some of that damage they were still saying sorry to people they were still taking former victims of theirs aside to apologize. They were helping where they could to bring others to account, to hold a, a whole corner of the British media to account. They just had a completely unique, they'd had a com completely unique professional and personal journey. And I, f I found it really interesting spending time with them, hearing their stories. Um, court courtroom reporting is can be particularly it requires a particular patience. You have to sit for a long time in the back of a room and be quiet and behave and not type too loudly and just hope that the day you're there has any sort of relevance to the story you're writing. But when Prince Harry parachuted in for the day and sat a metre or two in front of me while I was squished between one of his bodyguards and, and, and another, it certainly felt like a, a, a good and fortunate day to have showed up. And You were sitting next door to Elton John, is that right? Or was that another? He was there another day. That was another day. Right. That was another day. Yeah. Eating their their posh pret sandwiches on a, on a little bench. Unfortunately, I missed that myself. Um, it, it's 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 a level of the courtroom. It's it's it brings everyone onto the same level. We are all sitting on the same scraggy folding chairs, in the same beige painted stuffy courtroom. I love that. It was it was. I love that about 
the system that, that everyone crams in. There are journalists in there. There are dozens of lawyers. There are claimants. There are defendants. And the judge is sort of the headmaster trying to, trying to keep it all on track. Um, some, yeah, some really fascinating days of reporting. And you, you began the, the, your piece with a description of a big party held, hosted, uh, probably paid for by Hugh Grant to, to thank everybody involved. And, and, and that party there with the hacked and the hackers. Am I right in thinking that, that Hugh Grant might also be somebody who's going to take his case all the way? Or is that not yet decided? As I understand it, his case is, has been bunched with Harry's case. So those two are progressing together. And if they both refuse to settle, or and there are no other obstacles along the, along the way, that, that would be a, a, a joint trial next year. I didn't mention him in the, in the initial, in the, when we discussed that. I suppose partly because I know that Hugh Grant settled in the past with the Mirror Group for the many reasons we discussed. Perhaps it might come to pass that he has no choice but to settle in the in the news group's uh, case. My purely personal gut feeling is that there really is only one person who who has the unique combination of circumstances and and characteristics to go all the way, and it's it's probably Prince Harry. Tom, it's a fascinating piece. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for coming along to talk about it today. And it's in the current issue of Prospect Magazine, on sale now, the June issue, and illustrated on the front by a royal pair of boxing gloves decked out in ermine and frills with the title The Prince versus the Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of the latest issue, which, as I say, includes Tom's excellent cover story. There's writing from Matilda Mallison about the Nigerian communities taking Shell to court. Laura Barton has written about what a, another courtroom contestant, Ed Sheeran, his album Means for the Future of Pop. And David Willits is reviewing Matthew Goodwin's recent controversial book on populism. Goodbye and listen out for a new episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diaries from our family of seven writers, who include Sheila Hancock, writing about her long life, Alice Goodman, writing about a clerical life, and the former English cricket captain, Mike Greeley, writing about a sporting life. It's a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh. Sometimes it will make you cry. But it'll definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you and me. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.